Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. This is season two, the fourth episode of season two and episode number 73. I'm a principal and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with Maurice Cherry, who's founder and principal at a multidisciplinary studio in Atlanta, Georgia called Lunch. I really enjoyed catching up with Maurice and learning a little bit about his podcast that's clocking in at over 200 episodes. So to learn more about his background and why it's called Lunch in the first place, please enjoy my conversation with Maurice Cherry. Okay, guys, I am excited to welcome all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, Maurice Cherry. Maurice is the founder and principal at Lunch, a multidisciplinary studio in Atlanta that helps creative brands craft messages and tell stories for targeted audiences, including fostering relationships with underrepresented communities. His past clients include some little guys. Maybe you've heard of one or two of these. Facebook, MailChimp, Nike, Come on now. This list is awesome. Maurice, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Josh, thank you for having me. Well, hey, man, I was trying to remember today, um, as I told you right before the top of the show, I've been on vacation here for a little bit and I've been like away from the microphone for a little while. So I was even trying to jog my memory of how how you and I got connected if it was on Twitter or you guys reached out to us. But either way, um, excited to chat with you today and hear a little bit more about your show and your practice and and all the things you got going on. Sure. Let's do it. Cool. Well, one of my favorite questions to start with, especially for people who are longtime listeners of the show is always like to learn a little bit about your origin story. So how did you find your way into the world of design and creative business? Wow. That's a good question. Um, so I've always kind of had some, like baseline level of interest in technology in general. Uh, when I was a kid, I started out coding, learning basic on a little VTech laser 50 computer, uh, graduated up to doing basic on an Apple IIe. And then from there, working on a Macintosh, doing HTML and design. So I've always kind of had a hand in tech in that way. Design really started to come across, I want to say about senior year when I uh, designed the the school newspaper for my high school. And we got to learn Quark Express and PageMaker. And that was kind of my first foray into using some kind of a graphic design type of a interface. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, it really just kind of blossomed. I downloaded an illegal copy of Photoshop and, <laughs> and taught myself how to use that. Uh, <laughs> you know, kind of did some freelance work and things all through college. Uh, I didn't go to design school. I went to a a liberal arts school here in Atlanta called Morehouse. It's a a four-year college, all-male, historically black college. Uh, Majored in math, which is kind of probably the furthest thing from design. Uh, Wow. (laughs) So you're really good at those palettes in Illustrator where you punch all the numbers in. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, I was going to do computer science and computer engineering, but I was so into the web at that time. This was uh, like late 1999 going into 2000. And I was really into that. But my advisor said that, you know, the web is just a fad. And if this is something that you really want to do, then you need to think about, you know, changing your major or maybe even going to another school. Like he was flat out. That's what you should do. 
And I just ended up changing my major because I had a full scholarship to go to Morehouse. I wasn't going to give that up. And I was good at math. I was captain of the math team in high school and, you know, took AP calculus. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? I like math. And that was kind of (laughs) my left brain sort of activity is doing that sort of stuff. But I also did, you know, web design and things for, you know, just little clients here and there when I was in college. I did the website for my college scholarship department Um, and then just kind of kept doing freelance things until I got my first professional design job in 2005 working for the state of Georgia. Uh, Did that for a few years, worked for WebMD, worked for AT&T worked for a few startups around Atlanta before starting my own studio in 2008, which at the time it was called 318 Media. And uh, we just recently changed the name to Lunch about a year and a half ago. I love that. part of a a rebranding. Tell us about where that name came from. 318 Media or Lunch? Lunch. Well, (laughs) Lunch kind of came about because I wanted something that was going to... um, conjure up a positive feeling in people. I mean, any working professional is always looking forward to lunch at some point during their day. Oh my goodness. Uh, whether yes. whether whether it's a <laughs> nine to five, whether you work, you know, the graveyard shift, you're always looking forward to that break. You're always looking forward to that that uh time where you can be away from work. It's the one pivotal decision of the day sometimes. I've certainly worked in places that have had entire lunch cultures. And even for me, when I started off doing 318 Media, we used to do these uh, things called lunch and learns where we would, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. go to a company that we might be interested in doing business with and say, hey, let's take, you know, this department, like the marketing department to lunch. And then we'll do a catered lunch, but then also do a presentation about our business and the kind of work that we do in hopes of doing some design work. It was a gamble. Sometimes it worked out. Sometimes it didn't. Mm hmm. But I kind of always had that idea in the back of my mind to do something revolving around that name. And, you know, it just kind of came about, I think, really organically. You know, 318 Media, the name, when I started it at the time, I kind of just wanted something that would match me personally. My birthday is March 18th, so 318 is how that worked out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also in Atlanta, there are other three blank blank media companies. There's a three, five, two media. There's a oh, interesting three sixty media. And it was to the point where I started getting leads from these other companies. And I'm like, no, you mean the other <laughs> three blank blank media. And I had already been thinking about changing it because I had kind of an alternative spelling for three eighteen that people kept getting wrong. And I started the the name of the company with a number, which apparently is a problem with filling out forms a lot of times. So it mm. just made sense to kind of change the name to something shorter and more memorable that we could kind of play with creatively um, from a brand aspect. And so that's how lunch came about. That's awesome. I love the idea that, you know, somebody at your client's office could say, Hey, are you going with me to lunch? And that's, <laughs> and they, they're having this conversation. You mean to go see Maurice or you mean to go get a sandwich <laughs> or <laughs> Actually, by the time this uh, this airs, I'm on the way. I'm about to get new business cards made that are going to be uh, plastic key cards, so you can thread it on your key ring and it'll oh, look nice. like a lunch card. Because <laughs> our our current business cards are kind of like that. They have the little lunch symbols, they have lunch icons on the back, and I cross out the first one, and it says it pays to be loyal. So if they come back for repeat business, we cross off stuff like that. So nice. Just trying it out to see, you know, kind of how it works. 
Very cool. Well, tell us a little bit about, um, about lunch today. Is, is this a, a solo practice? Do you have a big team and, and why is the firm kind of set up and staffed the way it is? All right, sure. So lunch is pretty much a distributed team. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm the founder and principal here in Atlanta, but uh, I have my client relationship manager. She is currently in the Philippines. I have a support person who works in different cities around the world. He's part of this program called Remote Year. And so he'll maybe spend a a month in Johannesburg and then a month Mm. in Paris and then a month in Buenos Aires. So it it just kind of varies where he might be. And then we work with other freelancers and businesses that we've worked with on past projects and they're all over the world. So it's, it really just kind of works out that way. We, we keep in contact mainly through Slack. Uh, we have some email, but mainly everything is funneled through Slack. And then when it comes time for a big project and I put together a proposal, I put the call out to see who's available, who's interested. We come together. I have kind of my core team, which is me, my client relationship manager and my support person. We're like the core team. But then if there's other things where we may have to bring in a few more designers or developers, we can call on the people that we've worked with before and then they come in and work on projects and it's all very distributed. It's very 21st century. We're not all in the same place, but we all get the job done. So especially with people who are, well, I guess in wildly different time zones, do you guys have very much time during the day where you're, you know, connecting live or is everything kind of just distributed as well where it's kind of not, uh, not happening, uh, all in, all in real time, so to speak. Uh, there's a lot of time shifting that goes on. I time shift probably 99% of my emails. Um, so (laughs) I may finish up doing something at nine o'clock at night, Mm -hmm. but it's going to time shift. So it will send out automatically first thing in the morning at eight or, you know, I may Mm. get something from, uh, from Felicia who works over in the Philippines and she's 13 hours ahead. So that may come you know, 8 a.m. here is 8 p.m. there. So when it's ending off for her, it's beginning for me. So we kind of, you know, switch off that way. But a lot of stuff is uh, is mostly time shifted. When we're working with clients, we have a back-end project management system. So at any given point in time, they can log in and see where we're at at the specific project. We've got like a bunch of charts and graphs that really scratch that kind of type A personality that I have sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's that math brain. So they can see like, okay, we're, we're 45% into the project. We're on phase three, task five. That's exactly where we're at. And it's due by this date. So at no point in time can the client sort of wonder, well, what are we working on? You know exactly what we're working on. You can log in and find out and everything is right there. And because we have people that are also working in other time zones, you know, I'll wake up and I'll see all of the, you know, any threads in Slack for things I may need to get on. And usually, I mean, everything is done in terms of keeping in touch with the client within a 24-hour period. Like, it's not ever going too long where the client feels like they're uh, micromanaging us. Well, first of all, we try not to work with clients that do micromanage Mm -hmm. us because of that. Uh, But for the most part, if we're getting back to the client within 24 hours, it's it's a win either way. Well, let's get um, really nerdy and technical for half a second. I'm I'm curious what you've found to use for sending those time shifted emails. Is that just like a, a plugin for, uh, for Gmail or is that some other tool that you're using? So, um, I use Thunderbird for mail because I've got mm. probably about 
half a dozen email accounts. And so they're all funneled in through Thunderbird where I can see kind of an inbox of everything. Um, and then also on my phone, I use a, uh, I'm, I'm on Android and I use an app called Blue Mail, which does kind of the same thing. It just funnels everything into one inbox. So I can check off things as I see them. I can make a to-do list out of certain emails and just look at that to-do list. Uh, through Thunderbird, there's a plugin that's called Send Later 3. Mm-hmm. And I use that to time shift pretty much every email that I send. They've uh, got these buttons when in the in the main kind of composition window where you can type out your email and then you can either send it out 30 minutes later no, it's 15 minutes later, 30 minutes later, two hours later, or you can put in an exact date and time. And so it will just sort of keep it in the sort of outbox folder until it hits that certain time. And then it mm, will cool. automatically send out. Yeah. And usually it's going to be during the day when I know I'm going to be on my computer. So that way, if the client responds back immediately, I can get back to them immediately. So it, it just works out that way. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, this is coming from, from business owner to business owner, but I, I feel like you can really stress out your team. You know, it's easy for business owners to be awake at some weird hour and firing off emails. But then when your team wakes up and they get all these 2am, 3am emails, that's, <laughs> that doesn't have the same effect as it does when you send it. When, you know, when we send those, we get this, you know, all the chemicals in our brain are like, yes, you're being productive in the middle of the night. This is awesome. And your staff looks at it like, Oh, he's really freaked out. Like he doesn't, you know, he's not sleeping. He must be stressed. Like, why is he awake and do an email? So I think just the, 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 um, maybe the friendliness factor of that, that feature is a pretty cool idea. Yeah. And I mean, I personally, I try to do a hard stop every day between like seven and eight o'clock, uh, just because I know that's around the time that I know Felicia is going to be available. And so I can get things I need together to send to her and then she can send them off. She can time shift them, you know, what have you. But I try to make sure I've got a hard stop at that point because, again, when we're doing our onboarding for the types of clients that we have, we don't want to have the types of clients that are expecting us to respond back to emails at midnight if a strike of inspiration hits them. Like, <laughs> right. that's great. We'll get to you in the morning. Like, it's in our contract. We have a closed door, open calendar policy. Oh, very nice. If you need to reach us. You can you can schedule a time and we will devote 100 percent of our time to your specific problem. But none of this. Can we just hop on the phone real quick? No, 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 we can't because we're we're working. I'm working on something or I'm at an event or I'm doing this, that or the other. Mm -hmm. It's just much easier if it's scheduled. So that way I can devote as much time and energy to that as possible without being on the run and trying to remember what exactly it is that they're asking so I can give them a response. Well, there's two things that I want to pull out of that, what you just said. First of all, I think that closed door open calendar is a great phrase, and I hope hope lots of our listeners um, <laughs> steal that, if you don't mind. And then also, um, I'm really curious both – let's dig into the client thing here in just a second because I'm curious to hear more about what makes a good client. But while you've got that closed door open calendar policy, what what's a normal day look like for you? You alluded to it a little bit, but um, – you know, what's your split between like working on strategy or doing design or um, administrative stuff? And what's what's kind of your your mix for a given day or week? Let's see. So given day, I'm probably up around six o'clock. I'll get up, 
make tea, make breakfast, make breakfast or whatever. Um, I'll check the news kind of, I try to ease into the morning. Um, I try not to roll out of bed and just get to work. I try to give myself at least, at least an hour before I start maybe looking at some work things. Um, I tell businesses that our hours are from eight to eight, which is, is pretty much true. So if I'm up at six, I'm basically easing into the day about, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock. I'm looking at emails. I'm looking at, you know, any tickets that might've come through. I'm looking at Slack messages. I'm responding to emails. And I mean, also during the day, aside from just doing lunch things, I'm also doing stuff for my podcast revision path. So I may be interviewing someone. I may be doing research. I may be editing posts from our writers. I may be writing to our patrons on Patreon. Uh, so there tends to be a lot of kind of moving parts that are going on at any given point during the day. If we're talking about during projects, um, a lot of it is just checking in through our internal project management system, seeing where we're at with certain projects, making sure that we're still on deadline for a lot of things. If the client has any questions, I'm always there to answer any questions they might have. They get, they probably get too many emails from us during projects, but at any given time, at least they know we are working on it and it's not this uh, <laughs> it's not this sort of thing where they're wondering where we're at at the project at any given point in time, and then I usually will break for lunch around one ish, something like that. Uh, keep working through the afternoon, and again, I try to do a hard stop sometime between seven or eight o'clock, and that's that's the day. That's pretty much it. Nice. You mentioned Patreon. I feel like that's something I have heard of before, but I don't know what that is. So. Maybe maybe there are other listeners who aren't familiar either, but tell us a little bit about what that does. Yeah, so Patreon is a website where uh, creators of all kinds can set up uh, different pledging tiers for fans of their work to donate in order to get, you know, exclusive content to support the work that they're doing, etc. And people set up different intervals that they might have to get paid. Maybe it's every week, every month. Maybe it's per item that they produce or something like that. And so people can sign up at different pledge levels. You create pledge levels for what you want. So maybe $1 gets you this, $3 gets you this, $5 gets you that. The money is taken out every month. So you get a lump sum on your end. Mm -hmm. And then the, the patron is debited for however much that they've pledged and they get access to their perks. And that's, that's pretty much it. We found for the podcast, it's been really good because also those patrons end up being a bit of a kind of uh, board of directors in a way for things that are going on behind the scenes. If I want to get feedback before I decide to roll something out to the public, I can ask my patrons first to get their ideas and get their input before I decide to roll it out. Cool. I like that a lot. So maybe coming back to the other half of that question, you know, we, we name dropped a couple, couple clients that maybe one or two people are familiar with, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm curious what, how you define a good client outside of they don't want, want to micromanage you or they don't want to have those pop-up phone calls, but what else do you look for in a client that you think makes them a really good or a great client? I think what makes a really great client is one that is willing to kind of turn a crazy idea into a crazy reality. Um, and that's not every client. Some are just as mundane as we need a newsletter for X, Y, Z, and we'll give them a newsletter and that's done. Um, we find that the clients that are the best are the ones that are really excited about their project. They're excited to see it come to fruition. So as we're building it and as it's coming together, they're just as excited as we are. It's sort of as a, 
a two-way street. If they're excited about it, we're going to be excited about it. But if they're not excited, then we're not going to be that excited either. You know, we can only do so much. Uh, so the best types of clients are those that really are enthusiastic about the work. And of course, there are the basic, you know, things like they pay on time. They get you the content when you ask for it. They respond to emails in a timely fashion. Uh, those are things that we all try to suss out during our onboarding process just to make sure that we feel like they're going to be someone that's a good steward of their time. Oftentimes, some you know clients will hire an agency and they just want to pass the work off to them and forget it. And they never want to interact and they never want to be a part of the project until it's done. Uh, we find that's not a good way to work because we're putting so much into it and we want to make sure that the client is happy at the end. So we're always checking in at every single step to find out, is this what you want? Do you want something different? Do we need to change this? Because we don't want to get to the end of the project. And then they're like, oh, you know what? We really feel like you all dropped the ball. Well, we've checked in at all these different times during the project. <laughs> so if we dropped the ball at the end, you kept passing it to us. So what's going on? You know, yeah. um, and it's and it's better for us to suss that out in the beginning than at the end. And usually we do a a pretty good job that, of course, you know, every client is not like that. But circumstances can change. Uh, we tend to do two types, well, two rounds of consultations. We'll do one as we're onboarding them, and then we do one once we've got them fully signed on because oftentimes their priorities may change between the beginning of their project when they're super excited and the kickoff when they've now signed a contract and paid a deposit and they realize this is now a real thing that's going to happen. Uh, their perceptions can shift, their mindset can shift. And so we try to check in at that second point just to make sure, hey, we're, we're still good, right? Mm -hmm. you, you signed the contract, everything is good, we're ready to go. I just want to make sure because if not, we can refund this deposit and keep it moving. Yeah. Otherwise, let's, let's get started. What are maybe some of the biggest red flags that you watch out for? What are some of the things that you know, make you think, mm, they didn't ask for it, but we're going we're gonna to turn this project down and walk away? Or maybe step away before it even gets started, you know? Uh, generally, uh, bad communication is, is the number one red flag. Like I said before, we have that closed door, open calendar policy. I feel like if the client really does not, they don't like that, they don't adhere to that, we generally won't work with them. Because we need to be able to work to the best of our capacity to complete any project. And we've, we have to change our communication style with all of our other clients and all of our other projects just to fit this one particular client, it's usually not going to be a good match. So the communication type is, uh, is important. Mm -hmm. We do a large part of our communication through email and through our backend project management system, which also sends them an email. And the reason we do so much, so many things through email is because it just has a paper trail. They can go back and there's a timestamp and a date on when things have been done if we have a phone conversation, yeah, that's great. But do you remember exactly what you said on that phone call at that time? You know, mm -hmm. whereas if it's in the email, we can go back to it and say, this is what you said. And so this is what we've done just to make sure that we're both being held accountable. And there are clients that will say, hey, can we meet up? These are particularly uh, local clients, you know, hey, can we meet up? I just have a few questions. Can we have this? Well, you can put it in an email. And we will get back to you about that. Not saying that I'm averse to to meeting, but oftentimes I found, again, those types of clients, they're not hiring a contractor or, or they're not hiring someone to do their work. They're kind of hiring a friend 
they want someone to talk to. And, you know, I'm a friendly guy, <laughs> but I also run a business. And if you've hired me to do the work, I'm going to do the work. We can get to the friend stuff after the work is done. Meanwhile, let's just get the work done. You know, if they just, oh, well, I just wanted to meet for lunch to talk about, no, I'm, we're, we're working, we're busy. Let's let's keep going with that. Yeah, I just want to pick your brain. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. You can pick a payment method. You can do that. But if they're already a client, it's another, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But oftentimes, again, if they really try to vary or change our communication style, it's generally not going to be a match. I mean, we work fast. We work in a very certain way. And so any kind of deviation outside of that tends to be a problem. Uh I would say the other kind of big red flag is them not really having a clear idea on the scope of what it is that they want to do. During our initial consultation, we try as much as possible to kind of get to the root of what it is because they may say, oh, I need a website. But then you talk to them and what they really need is a website and a logo and a brand guide and a newsletter. Like they need a whole system of things. They don't just need one thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they need all those things, that's great. If they're unable to pay for all those things, then it's like, OK, well, can we scale down your expectations to fit your budget? And if we can, that's great. We'll try to work within those parameters. Uh, if not, mm, probably not. You know, oftentimes we'll have, you know, potential clients that will come and they want to try to I don't know. It's almost like they do this uh, this pickup artist style of negotiation you know, like they try to <laughs> neg you and it's like, OK, we can end this phone call right now. If that's if, if it's going this way, uh, we're not going to do that. Um, but, yeah, that, that initial consultation can really help to kind of determine if they know exactly what it is that they're looking for. And if they don't have a good idea and if I feel like I've tried to spell it out to them and they're still not on board, then we generally won't work with them. What does that pickup artist conversation sound like? Oh, God. So <laughs> they'll look through the portfolio and say, you know, well, you know, I looked at some of this work and, you know, I don't know if it really fits the price that you put it together in the proposal. Well, you don't really know what else went into that besides what you're seeing as the finished product. Like we may have had to do rounds of A-B testing to get to that. We may have had to go past our regular rounds of revision to get to the final product uh, just because you're looking at the end product and trying to gauge the value doesn't mean that you know all the other things that have went into it. But it will be things like that generally off of trying to judge uh, the portfolio and say, well, we don't feel like for what you put forth in the portfolio that, you know, your price doesn't match what we're seeing and we could go to X, Y, Z and we think they could do it better. And oftentimes I'll invite them to do just that. Like if you want to price match it, this is not Walmart. So mm-hmm. if you want to do that, go right ahead. I try to be as upfront with clients as possible because I don't want to waste their time or mine. And if it's not a fit, it's not a fit. Yeah, that fit thing is is really important. And for for someone to feel like they're getting value for for what they're spending, that they're, you know, they've got to be they got to be all in, or it's going to be uh, an awkward couple of weeks or months. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's dig in a little bit to your podcast. Tell me a little bit about Revision Path. So Revision Path is a, a design podcast where I interview black designers and developers and creatives and illustrators pretty much all over the world. Um, 
as of this recording, we are coming up on 200 episodes. We'll hit episode 200 in mid-July, on July 17th. That is awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Our, our uh, guests are mostly here in the United States, but we've interviewed people in the Caribbean, throughout Europe, all throughout Africa, um, through Australia as well, hoping to branch into Asia and South America at some point this year, fingers crossed. Um, but it's it's all types of people. It's web designers, graphic designers, illustrators, animators, uh, painters, uh you know, you often have developers too. We have big data people. We have just a big, there's a lot of diversity within the the guests that have been on the show. And I know that people can sometimes look at our, uh, our archive of podcasts and think that, you know, it's just, oh, you just talk to black people, which we do, but there's a lot of diversity in what you think might be just a monolithic set. There's so many different types of folks that have been on the show and all of it is sort of contributed to this sort of rich tapestry of showing what it is that a black creative does online, what it is that we contribute to the industry and also serves as inspiration for those that maybe want to follow in their footsteps. Yeah, that's super cool. How did you get started in the podcast thing in the first place? 200 episodes is, you know, it seems like you're a little committed at this point. So (laughs) I don't think anybody said, you know, lots of people do say, I'm going to start a podcast and they release one or two episodes or they try to record or, you know, it doesn't really go off. Yeah. And there, there are plenty of podcasts out there. You can go and find, you know, famously there are two or three episodes or they stopped at number nine. And, um, so, so how did you get fired up to do that in the first place? And how did you stick with it for 200 plus? So the story of revision path goes way back to about 2000, for 2005. At the time, this was when I got my first design job. And I had friends of mine that were also black designers in the industry working at different companies. And it just didn't feel like we were getting any type of recognition for the work that we were doing. I don't know if it was because we were young or because the industry, I guess, in terms of media perception itself was fairly young around design, but we just felt like we weren't getting you know, those opportunities to speak or to talk about our work or anything like that. And I wanted to do something around it then, but I just did not have the time. I was in this new job. I was starting graduate school. It just wasn't something I could also add onto my plate. Um, I had also at that time started a side project called the Black Weblog Awards, which was my way of showcasing black bloggers and video bloggers and podcasters that were around during that time. I did the Black Weblog Awards from 2004 to 2011, where I uh, sold it to another company. They kept it going until last year, so it's had a it's had a pretty good run. Around 2013 was when I really had the time and the space to do Revision Path. I was five years in on my studio. I had the time to kind of put something together that I wanted to do around this. And I felt like I had reached a point in my career where I could, you know, had a little bit of cachet, where if I reached out to people, I could make that happen. Uh, And so that's really kind of how Revision Path started. At first, it was these long, kind of thousand word plus long form interviews. And that was going pretty well, except for the frequency. I couldn't get them out every week like I wanted to. I really was committed to doing something every week as kind of a, a practice 
Um, but it was just harder to reach people. People weren't responding to emails. And it just became easier at that point to say, well, why not just do a podcast? Because if I can get them for 60 to 90 minutes and we talk it out, then we could just record it. And that's that. And so that's kind of how I ended up doing it. Uh, ironically enough, say like the very first episode, which, by the way, don't listen to it because it's really bad in terms of the audio quality. But <laughs> someone had heard of Revision Path and they were coming in town out of Chicago from Chicago. And she was like, hey, I heard about Revision Path. I'd love to do an interview with you. And I'm like, OK, I had zero recording equipment. All I had was my phone, which at the time, God, this to show how old this was, this was, I think, like a, a uh, like you remember the very first Android phone from T-Mobile, the G1 or something like that. I think that was the phone mm-hmm. that I used to record that episode. And we met at a restaurant and like the phone was on the table and we were just kind of talking back and forth. I had no idea what I was doing. So it wasn't great, but that was sort of the catalyst to keep it going and to keep doing audio. And so eventually bought a microphone and, you know, started interviewing more people. And then it just kind of kept going on a good clip after that. I mean, at the time, people were recommending a bunch of folks to me. I was doing like crazy research into finding more black designers through LinkedIn and through trade organizations and such. And it really just kind of kept going from there, especially once we started getting sponsors. Um, it really just has snowballed now to where it's almost 200 episodes. We've got, you know, the support of, of MailChimp and Hover and SiteGround and Facebook and AIGA. And it's, it's really just been amazing to see how the folks that have been on the show are now going on and doing more speaking and they're being more visible in the industry. And, you know, I I don't want to say I'm attributing all of that to revision path, but I feel like giving them that platform so other people can see what it is that they're doing because maybe no one else reached out to them might've had a hand in that. So I feel really grateful to have the opportunity to have this platform for folks to do this and to, you know, really gotten this far. It'll be five years next year in February. So it's, it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So you've been, uh, you were sort of into the podcast thing before it was cool the second time. Yeah. I, it's funny. You said, yeah, you say the second time I actually revision path is actually my sixth podcast. Oh, nice. I, I started podcasting way back in 2005, just doing little one-off kind of series types of shows and things like that. Uh, here in Atlanta, we had the Georgia Podcast Network that I was a part of, and that went on until about 2009 or so. I feel like between 20, between 2009 and like 2012, 2013, podcasting kind of died off a little bit. But I remember listening to podcasts at work from like NPR and from other media outlets. And so I'm glad that podcasting has really gotten uh, this second wind. It's gotten this resurgence and that I was able to kind of get in on this second wave when it happened. Yeah, that's really cool. Who are maybe some of the people that you haven't had on the show yet that you're just chomping at the bit to to have on? Wow. Um, that is an interesting question because at 200 episodes, I feel like if there's someone that I haven't had on the show now or by now, it's probably not going to happen. I've, I've resigned my fate when it comes to that. There are certainly people I would, I would love to have on the show that, that I have reached out to before and it just hasn't gotten anywhere. And maybe they're super busy. Uh, they haven't responded to the email. Um, it just, 
at, at this stage in the game, I'm content with the guests that I have now, and I have some really exciting guests that are coming up in the future. Um, so yeah, I'm not really. I used to have a wish list. If you asked me in 2015, I could I could give you like a dozen names. Now, not so mm. much. Now I'm grateful for every guest that we have on the show. I, what I found is that it, it's just been much easier to kind of just stay in this lane and be consistent and be focused um, and to to keep making sure that it's consistent every week without trying to chase kind of the the bigger names. Because what I found, and I don't know if this is the case with other shows, but I found that big guests does not necessarily equal big download numbers or big win. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah, it's it's great to get them. Like, it's a good get. It's also kind of a good gambit when you're pitching to other potential guests. And that's, you know, that's wonderful. But also saying I've had 200 episodes is a pretty good gambit, too, to let you know, hey, this is not some fly-by-night operation. Like, I'm I'm doing this for real. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's not anyone I would say, if, if it's by now, if I haven't had them on the show, either they've just been too busy or I've said, you know what, I just got to keep it moving. You know, there's... There's only so many white whales you can chase, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if, um, if Douglas Davis has been, he on, has your been show, on the but, show, but he was, he was an awesome interview first and foremost, but he was one of those opposite ones for me where his, his publisher reached out to us and said, Hey, Douglas has a new book coming out and I think he'd be a great fit for your show and think you'd enjoy talking with him. And, you know, I wasn't familiar with him or his work or his book and I was just blown away by all three. And he was uh, a really strong episode in terms of downloads too. So there for a while, he was maybe the second or third most popular show. So he, you know, you, you just never know which guests are going to be incredible and which, you know, quote unquote famous or, you know, designers who work for a big brand or a big company are, are sometimes just kind of duds when it comes to the conversation. Right. And it, well, I don't want to say that much. It's more so that just because, because I feel like even the most boring guests that I've had, I've gotten something out of it that works. Um, what I found is that they may not be the best when it comes to promoting it after it's done because they may not like the sound of their voice or they just, you know, mm -hmm. they've done the mm -hmm. interview and they're just kind of moving on to whatever the next thing is. So, you know, the caliber of the guest I found is not necessarily, you know, proportional to the amount of of downloads or feedback that you might get from it. Um, I would say probably most recently I'm trying to think of most recently, what's been a pretty big uh, download numbered episode. I would say it's probably one uh, we're recording this now in like late June. Um, I did an episode back in like the end of May uh, with a designer in LA, Lacey Jordan and I've, you know, been familiar with Lacey's work. She does really great work. Um, and we actually did that interview three times. Like the first time we recorded was on her birthday. Um, she was just like super <laughs> excited. And I was like, we probably just need to chill out because I was we had more of a conversation than an interview. And I didn't feel like it was suitable to air. And then the second time we had some technical difficulties. And then the third time we finally got it out. Um, and it was still a great interview. I think each time something new was brought to the interview that wasn't in the preceding one. And I had no, I mean, she has a, a great audience. She's not someone, and I, I don't, I hate to say it that way, but she's not someone that is, um, I would say, super well known in terms of when you think of people in these kind of upper echelon design circles. But she gave a great interview. She was super mm -hmm. honest. She was super real. Her and I have a lot in common, both being from Alabama and both being designers. 
And it made for a really great and authentic episode that a lot of people really liked. I think it's uh, it's Paula Scherer's joke from Pentagram that, you know, being a famous designer is akin to being a famous dentist. <laughs> like you kind of have to you kind of have to be one to know who somebody is. And I would say even more so when you get into kind of like less than national caliber firms where you've got people who are doing amazing work in a smaller market or even even a big market, but that's the only market they work in. If you're not, you know, in and around what's happening in, in LA or in Detroit or whatever, you may, may not be familiar with those people. So it's, it's really cool to discover these amazing designers. I guess this is a general call out for, for if, uh, if you've got recommendations for who Maurice or I should be interviewing next, be sure to hit us up on the Twitters and let us know who you think we should chat with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been really like I said, fortunate and, and privileged to not only do a lot of, you know, just U.S.-based interviews, but international interviews as well. And so it's always good to kind of get the design perspective from someone in a totally different country because it's, you know, some countries or well, a lot of countries really kind of look to the U.S. in an aspirational stance when it comes to design things because of our kind of really fast-moving design culture. Uh, so it's interesting to hear how a designer in Kenya might be looking to the U S for inspiration or how a designer in Australia might work. And like, I always try to ask them, what do designers here in the States need to know about the design scene where you're currently at? Because those are perspectives which are not really shared. I mean, when you think about Africa and design, you may only think of really kind of stereotypical perceptions of what that might mean. But, you know, you have these really modern cities like Nairobi and, um, Lagos and Johannesburg and, you know, et cetera, Accra that will have these design circles that have, they're doing entrepreneurship and tech and design, and they're really kind of making an impact. And so it's, it's good to kind of get that perspective and share it here in the States so we can know what our designers across the world are doing. Yeah. I think that's really cool. So just coincidentally, you mentioned Kenya, my brother's on his way home from Kenya today, which is, which is pretty cool. He's there nice. for a couple weeks. But I'm I'm curious in particular, if you don't mind me going down this path, but obviously with the revision path, you're focusing on um, on black designers and your former black weblog awards. Tell me about kind of your your mission in that focus and and maybe what some of the the misperceptions may be around what it means to be black and a designer. <laughs> Josh, I just do a whole lot of black stuff. That's kind of what it boils out to. <laughs> um I mean, <laughs> for me, it's, oh, this is, this is a, it's going to kind of be a tricky question. So my, everything about me in terms of like my racial heritage is a, is a super important part of just who I am in general. I'm from a small town in Alabama called Selma, which I'm sure a lot of people know about because of the movie Selma, mm-hmm. as well as mm-hmm. it's, you know, place in the civil rights movement. So I come from a city that's kind of very well steeped in these you know, tenuous racial dynamics. Um, I've grown up around HBCUs and positive black culture all my life. I went to a historically black college. I live in Atlanta, which is a pretty black city. I live in a black neighborhood. I'm a black man. So all of this kind of informs the lens that I see and experience everything through. Um, It's not something that I can just sort of shut out or, or ignore when it comes to any of the work that I try to do. Everything that I've done with either the Black Weblog Awards or with Revision Path has largely been about um, showcasing a positive platform 
for other people so they can know who these folks are. Because I don't want to say if I'm not doing it, no one else is because other people are doing it. But I also feel like because I've been doing it for so long, I'm able to tap into kind of a certain, I don't know, a certain ethos or a certain feeling with people that uh, others might not. I can I can easily relate to folks, not necessarily saying easily relate to black people, but, you know, showcasing them on this platform gives them an opportunity to speak about their work in an environment where they're comfortable opening up to. Um, we may, you know, get into real talk about things that may, they may not discuss anywhere else. Um, but I'm able to offer them this kind of safe space for that to happen. Now, in terms of the perception of how that is taken other ways from by other people, um, <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I want to see how far I want to go into this. So when I started doing the Black Weblog Awards, uh, again, this was around 2004 when I started it. It really started kind of picking up in like 2006, 2007 and so and it was really bad for me personally because this was around the time, you know, racial tensions in America were pretty high because Obama was running and there was all this talk of us being in a post-racial America and yada, yada, yada. And I was getting a lot of mm -hmm. heat for the Black Weblog Awards. I was getting people calling my employer. I got doxxed a few times. And this is before, you know, it was really something that's a big thing online now. But when it happened back then, it really kind of made me wonder if I should even continue to do this because I'm doing something that is positive. What I'm doing is not taking away from anybody else. Like it's not a zero sum game. You know, if anything, I'm just adding to the complexity and the richness of the blogosphere that is being ignored, honestly, until this time. And I was just getting a lot of negativity from it. Uh, from outside, not saying I wasn't getting positive things, but the negativity definitely outweighed the positive stuff. And so when the Black Weblog Awards ended, I took a break for a few years to decide if I wanted to do another kind of project that would, you know, kind of focus on this. And I had my sights squarely on the design community because, again, I was a working designer. I had a design studio at that point I've been doing for five years. And I felt like there were other folks out there that people need to know who they are and what their stories are. And so when I did Revision Path, I started it in 2013. I mean, I think it went pretty well. It was still, it was still, and it is still hard for the general design community to adopt and sort of pay attention to it. Um, and again, I've been doing this now for going on five years. It's The show is still a hard sell for a lot of people. Um, they will look at it. They will see a whole bunch of black people. They may not see anyone that they recognize and just won't pay attention to it. And, you know, they may not be the ideal listener and that's, that's fine if they're not. Uh, but there's, I think a lot that they're missing, of course, by doing that. There's a lot of stories that they're missing. There's a lot of really great people that they can learn about that they're missing by doing that. I want to say around 2015 was when I really had to kind of, uh, I really had to course correct in 2015 because again, I started revision path in 2013, 2014, 2015. I was really like trying to get the word out about it. So I was reaching out to other podcasts saying like, Hey, is there ways that we can collaborate? And I would never hear anything back Or I would reach out to someone and say, Hey, you know, you're doing this. I'm doing that. Is there any kind of way we can work together? I can recommend some people. And they're like, yeah, you know, we really don't talk about race on our show. So probably not. 
So I was getting a lot of pushback from the design podcast community in 2015 when I was reaching out to shows. And the only show that was cool and was like, hey, you know what? Let's come on was on the grid, which was on uh, was on five by five. The show is now defunct. But uh, Andy Mangold, Matt McInerney, Dan Auer, I've been on their show twice when they had it. Those were the only design podcasters I reached out to that were like, yeah, let's do something. Everybody else I either never heard anything <laughs> from or I got back something negative in response. And so at that time, I said, you know, what you need to do is you really need to focus on just staying in your lane. Stay in your lane. Do exactly what it is that you need to do and not try to worry about, you know, trying to reach these other people that for some reason you're just not reaching. Like stay in your lane. Be consistent hit these milestones that you need to hit because then that shows people that, yes, you're serious about this. It shows people, hey, this is what you're missing. And you're really being a megaphone for a community that needs that. And so right around that time is when I really course corrected and said, you know, I'm not trying to reach out to other design podcasts. I was I was trying to join podcast networks. That wasn't going anywhere. And I just shifted my focus to just focusing on the show and you know, I realized that I owned Revision Path in terms of what it was. And so now I need to own the work that comes with that. And so I just focused and I've continued to focus everything on making sure that that's going well with doing partnerships with companies and just sort of building it out from there. Well, I think that's awesome. And, you know, obviously just by kind of looking at your body of work, like you can can see where your passions and interests lie. And um, I'm glad that you were brave enough to to identify that and then stick with it. I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, really it, I think the, um, the grand realization sort of of all of this is when I was able to present at Facebook last year and I closed out their design lecture series. I mean, Facebook is a sponsor. Uh, I also recorded some episodes while I was there, but then they also invited me to speak, which during that presentation, I kind of gave like the rundown of this is how it's been with revision path this whole time. And, you know, these are kind of the lessons that I learned from doing it. And so from there, that just was really uh, empowered me to keep it going, to, you know, keep striving to hit the mile markers that I feel like I need to hit, whether it's a certain number of downloads, whether it's new partnerships, whether it's, you know, 200 episodes, uh, strive to hit those marks. So that way, you know, nobody can contest Nobody can contest the body of work that has been built up to this point. You know, if they want to shout it down or not pay attention to it because it's black people, that's that's on them. And if they want to do that, that's fine. But like, you're not going to ignore this work that's went into it. Like, this is something that is is worthy of recognition. Yeah, that's cool. So maybe this is a good segue. Tell me about one of your proudest moments as a professional designer. Ooh, proudest moment as a professional designer. I would say probably um, in 2009, this was like the first year after I started my business. First year of business was rough. I mean, it was, I took on some really bad clients, um, almost had to take a client to court for like $200. Like it was bad that first year. I had no idea really what I was doing. Um, and I ended up getting together with two other guys and we sort of started this other business called Relate Media Group. And during that business, we ended up working with a local mayoral candidate 
She, you know, she was running for mayor for the mayor's race that year. Um, and working in that political environment, I feel like opened my eyes up to a lot of different things. One, just the whole, you know, craziness of working in a campaign and this being, you know, the first set of municipal races post Obama where social media and the internet are expected now as, you know, making an impact or being a part of your campaign. I mean, nobody had written any books on this or had done any talks. I was all kind of kind of building the plane while it was flying. And so it was a really good experience to do that with something that fast paced. And also really the connections and and I got from that and meeting other people in other communities. Uh, by the time that campaign ended, uh, she didn't win. Campaign ended that year. We dissolved the business that year because we just it just wasn't working. But that experience taught me so much about what I wanted and needed to do out of business. I feel like I walked away from that with a lot of skills that I would not have gotten otherwise. And then it really kind of set me up for success for the next few years in terms of potential clients, in terms of just getting my name out there. Uh, that campaign really kind of ended up being a, a good springboard for a lot of the success that I have today. Very nice. So one of my favorite questions to ask our designer guests is kind of based on the name of the show, Obsessed with Design. I'm curious, Maurice, what you find that you are most obsessed with right now? Oh, wow. I am obsessed with the possibilities of summer. Uh, this is one of the first summers where I really don't have a ton of stuff that I'm doing. Like I've got the show. The show is largely on autopilot. Like we try to record episodes, you know, at least a month or so out. But I mean, in terms of work stuff, we've got our regular clients. The summer is usually our slow season. And I've just been excited with the possibilities that come with the summer. I've been redecorating my living room. I've been getting into more personal and creative writing. Um, of course, I'm focusing on revision path for this second half of 2017. Um, hopefully have some things that are going to be coming up with a few sponsors. Uh, lunch's ninth anniversary is going to be in November. You know, and there's just a ton of other creative projects that I am sort of got my hands in. I can't really mention any of them right now because they're still in this very nascent stage, but I'm just excited for the summer and the possibilities that come with that is I'm really excited to see what the rest of this year is going to bring. Cause it's always so cool and refreshing in Atlanta. In summer, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's a constant spring breeze from June to August. <laughs> you just want to be outside on the sidewalk. I mean, listen, it's, it'll be 85 degrees at eight in the morning here. And the, the humidity, it feels like a hundred oh, and, you know, people, <laughs> I know that, you know, people call Atlanta hotlanta. First of all, no one in Atlanta calls Atlanta hotlanta. <laughs> that is a thing that like tourists and like corny marketing white guys say, like nobody says hotlanta with any sort of like seriousness. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it does get hot here and you know, it's a good time to stay in and relax, but also, I mean, we got longer days. I mean, Atlanta is wonderful in the summer aside from the heat. I mean, the weather is great. It's just a lot of stuff going on. I'm really excited to see kind of what the summer is going to bring. And in terms of what I'm obsessed with, I guess, if anything, I'm really just obsessed with the possibilities. I'm, I'm working on, like I said, a couple of creative projects uh, with sponsors. I'm hopefully doing some stuff with my local AIGA chapter. 
Um, I've just been making more time for my creative work because a lot of what I've done over the past few years has been highlighting and showcasing other people's creative work, which is great. And I'm still doing that. But it hasn't left me a lot of time to work on my stuff. And so, you know, it's that whole thing of the cobbler's children have no shoes. Well, I'm working on my shoes. (laughs) I love that. Working on my shoes. What's a dream project that you haven't had a chance to work on yet that's on your list of of things that you want to do? Dream project. I have a lot of dream projects. Um, I would love to... I would love to design like a restaurant, like from ground to ceiling, not just the branding concept of the logo and the menu and all that sort of stuff. I mean, Atlanta's a city that has a lot of restaurants, um, but I would love to have my hand in designing like an experience like that. You know, I would love to do something such as that. Um, I have a longstanding dream project of putting together a graphic novel. Uh, it's a it's an idea that I've had at least since I was 15. Hmm, very cool. And so now I feel like I've got the time and hopefully the resources to start to make that happen, even in small incremental ways, just to get it out of my head and get it into the world in some sort of way uh, is a dream project I would have. If, I, if, if everything else failed, if lunch went out of business, if I stopped doing Revision Path, that would be the dream project is putting together that graphic novel. You know, it seems like with a name like lunch, that'd just be a natural thing for restaurants to be beating down your door. Well, I think it's still pretty new in terms of the name. Uh, so maybe it's just a matter of me getting out there more and and talking to people. But yeah, people, it's funny because folks check into lunch all the time on Facebook. I'm like, no, you're, you're not. You're not checking into the meal lunch. It's the company lunch. It's a different lunch. But uh, yeah, I, w- <laughs> I would love to do something along those lines. I think that would be really cool. Nice. Well, um, I've just got a couple more questions before we let you go here, but I know you mentioned on your website that you're an educator and, uh, I'm, I'm always curious for designers what their, what their favorite piece of advice is that they've ever received, or maybe your favorite to pass along to, to young designers or to students. Ooh. So a favorite piece of advice that I've gotten is one that I'm pretty sure I don't know. I feel like my mom probably told me or my grandmother told me or like one one of my older relatives told me, which was uh, to never make something a priority that treats you like an emergency. Mm, that is good. And so that's something that I've really that's something I really like carried forward through with business, uh, with personal relationships, um, you know, even with, you know, volunteer types of things. You know, it's you have to know at, at some point in time when when it's time to get out. And uh, that advice, I feel like, has really served me well. You know, I think sometimes when we're in relationships, whether it's business or personal, et cetera, we can often feel like there's an imbalance at times where you're doing too much and you don't feel like the other person is really kind of uh, kind of pulling their weight, so to speak. And with that, you kind of have to know when is the time for you to get out when you feel like it's no longer serving you. And uh, that advice has, has served me very well. Uh, advice that I would give to designers is uh, saying saying that I've I don't know when I picked this up, but it's always also served me well. Is that fortune favors the bold? It's a it's a very old saying. I think the, the army uses that saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I always tell people that because I would not have gotten the level of, su- of success that I've attained to this point if I didn't take a lot of really bold steps and measures. Whether it was 
applying for a job in the back of an alt weekly, which ended up being my first professional job to quitting my senior design job to start a business with no kind of idea of where I was going to get clients from to even starting the black weblog awards and even starting revision path. Everything I've done with these types of projects and these types of steps with my career has really been about in a way stepping out on faith, but also about just being bold and being big in your choices. And you know, the dividends have luckily paid off. Very nice. Well, before we let you go here, tell all of our listeners where they can find you online or connect with you or find your show and anything else that you would direct us to. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find uh, lunch at yep. It's lunch.com. That's Y E P I T S L U N C H.com. Uh, you can also find us at that same name on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, you can find revision path at revisionpath.com. That's R E V I S I O N P A T H.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. And then me personally is uh And you can see links there to my consulting and speaking and bio, as well as uh, my LinkedIn, my Tumblr and my sometime regular newsletter that I probably need to do another issue of. I, I can never get on on uh, on a good schedule with that, but I'm working on it. <laughs> so when in doubt, Google Maurice Cherry and you're probably. Yeah, probably not the thing. Spanish professor at Furman, not the R&B singer. There's like an R&B singer named Maurice Cherry, not the R&B singer, <laughs> not the chef in D.C. Um, Maurice Cherry in Atlanta. That's me. And Mo Cherry is right out. No, 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 Mo. I've never, I've never liked that. I've always just, it's Maurice. I've never liked being called Mo. Every person that calls me Mo and I tell them, don't call me Mo. And they keep saying it. I'm just like, you're, you're like, you're really trying to piss me off. Like, just don't say that. It's, it's <laughs> Maurice. Just that's fine. <laughs> you got it. Well, Maurice, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for being on the show and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that's episode number 73 in the books. Do me a favor this week. As we're getting into season two here, we are definitely on the lookout for other great conversations and interviews. Tweet to me at Josh Miles or at Obsessed Show and let me know who you think we should interview next. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. Visit us online at milesherndon.com. And you can sign up for my email list at milesherndon.com slash josh. Tell us what you think of the new intro music. And thanks again to Gen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company for all of the great edits and making us sound like we got it right the first time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>